This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Please be seated, and then we'll pray. Father in heaven, we would ask that you, you would bless us this morning. We would ask that you would cause your face to shine upon us. We would ask that you would honor yourself. Lord, we would ask that you would send your spirit to bless your people, Lord. Lord, I would ask that you would help me to have the strength to honor you, to think clearly, to speak your word with boldness, that I would say the things that you want me to say in the way you want me to say them. Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. We know that you are for us. In his name we pray, amen. 
Before we jump into Revelation 5 this morning, what I would like to do is just go back through the scriptures, hopefully faster than I did the first service, because I kind of found out I have too much information in my notes for service, so things don't always go the way you plan, right? <clears throat> but the main thing that I want us to see is the destiny of the world is not up for grabs. The destiny of the world is secure. And when we look at the scriptures and as we look at Revelation 5, we need to understand, as you've been told over and over again, that God has one consistent plan for the world. He doesn't have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C in case, you know, one of them fails, he can go to the other option. From the beginning, he had a plan to save people from all the people groups of the whole world. And we see this all the way back from Genesis on. If you think back to Genesis, what was God's plan? When he made Adam and Eve, right, he made them in his image, right, Genesis 1.26. He made them in his image. He says, let us make man after our likeness. And very simply, what does that mean? That God shared some of his kingly glory with human beings. That's why we are the pinnacle of creation. And he did this for a purpose, right? He did this so that we, to give us dominion over the whole earth. If you read Genesis, that's what it says, right? Let them have dominion over everything in creation. And the reason God did that is so that we would be his representatives to promote his glory in the earth. And he didn't want it just to be a small thing. He wanted this to be something that filled the whole earth. He wanted the pinnacle of his creation to fill the whole earth so that people all around the whole earth, the whole earth would be filled with people who were promoting his glory. And so that's why he gives them the command be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? It's, I used to think of that as just like, go have a lot of kids. And looking at me, you might think that's what I think. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. But why did God tell them that? Because it was about them and him getting the glory from people that filled the earth. He wanted the earth full of human beings worshiping and promoting his glory. We see in the beginning that Adam and Eve were in the presence of God. That's where they found their fullest joy, their uh, deepest sense of purpose and meaning in life. Right? God's presence, Psalm 1611, is where fullness of joy is found. Psalm 1715, it is even after we die, David said he wants to awake and be satisfied with the presence of God. That's, he, doesn't look, he doesn't like all the people of the world who are chasing after more and more in this life. What he looks forward to is opening his eyes and being in the presence of God. Now, mankind had a little problem, right? Instead of doing what we were told, we rebelled against God. And keep in mind, when we think of this original created purpose, God keeps on saying, let them, 
Let them do these things. Let them have dominion. I will make man in my image. Let them fill the earth. What we need to understand is that this original purpose for creation extends to all the peoples of the world. We won't look there now, but you can jot down Acts 17.26. It says something sort of like that Paul says this to the men at Athens, that God made from one man, Adam, all the nations in the world, and he's determined their allotted times and their boundaries. And so we need to understand very clearly, from the beginning, from that one man, Adam, God had a purpose for all the different kinds of people in the whole world. But mankind, human beings, had a problem. We didn't follow God's directions. We ate from the tree. We did the one thing that he told us not to do. And because we did that, one thing that happened is we lost the knowledge of God. And what does it mean to lose the knowledge of God? It doesn't mean that we don't know that he exists anymore, right? Because the Bible teaches that we all suppress the truth. What it means is we don't see God for who he really is. We don't desire him. We don't see that he is the being that can make us truly happy and filled with joy and meaning. We see him as a killjoy, right? We see him as the opposite of what he truly is. But more than that happened, right? Uh, instead of being the rulers of the earth, because we rebelled, we were cursed, and now we're actually slaves. We're slaves to sin, to Satan, and to death. And so instead of being rulers on the earth, now earth has rebelled against us, and we are under the thumb of sin and Satan and death. Now, the good news is, is that even our rebellion didn't take God by surprise, right? It wasn't like God's like, oh, man, they rebelled against me. What am I going to do now? See, God has always had a plan to be worshipped by all the peoples of the world. And so uh, we won't turn there, but you can look to at Genesis, right? Genesis 12, like one through three down, right? What was the promise made to Abraham? That in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. We saw recently, if you've been around here, uh, in the Tower of Babel, what did man do? They got together to make a great name for themselves. But you know what? God just turned, twisted up their languages, gave them a bunch of languages, and used that to actually fill the earth with human beings, right? Men weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and so he scattered them all around the earth. And now you might be thinking, okay, this isn't working out so good. We were supposed to be having dominion and promoting God's glory around the earth, but now the whole earth is filled with rebels. <laughs> like, okay, this, like, that's not the way I would do things, right? I don't like, like, the, you know, the games that go right down to the wire. I like the games where my team, like, blows the other team out from, like, in the first quarter, right? <laughs> and I don't have to, like, uh, worry about who's going to win. But God has a plan in this. God's plan has always been to show that he is most glorious. It's always been his plan. And if you scatter rebels around the world and they see all the amazing things that are in the world and they have all their own cultures and they come up with all the most amazing gods that they can come up with and worship all the most amazing things that they can think of and then some of those people from all around the world realize that their gods are fake and there's only one true God, 
That's God's plan to show that he is the one true God who deserves praise over anything else in the universe. And so God has always had this plan to show that he is most glorious. And we could look up uh, lots of scriptures. Uh, Think about Psalm 67. Uh, The psalmist says there, let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's really God's heart, even as it's seen in the New Testament. And so when we come to uh, the New Testament from the Old Testament, we see that God doesn't have two separate plans for the world. God doesn't have a plan of, oh, now I'm working with the nation of Israel and the Jews, and they reject me, and now I'm going to go to all the peoples. God's always had one consistent plan. Now, I'm not saying that there's not new things in the New Testament. That's not what I'm saying. What I want us to understand is it's always been God's heart. It's always been his plan to reach all the peoples of the world. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus comes, he comes to reveal who God is to us. He comes to make us new creations. He comes to show us the glory of God in his face so that we can be saved and not just make us new creations, but to change us back into the image of God, right? We are being transformed into the image of God as we continue to gaze upon his glory. And as we are told in Colossians 3.10, we have put on the new self who is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. That's who we are. And as those people, it should not surprise us then that our risen Savior gives us the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And the reason I bring this up is because as we turn now over to the book of Revelation, what I want us to see is that God's plan has never been in doubt. God's plan has always been consistent. And the reason I want us to see that, as we'll see here, is as followers of Christ, even the apostle John himself, he had times of doubt. We have times of doubt. When we can't see the kingdom going the way we think it should be going, we tend to doubt. And so we need to step back and we need to look at the revelation that was given John so that we are faithful to continue with confidence following God as we attempt to fulfill the Great Commission. One thing that John says right up front In Revelation 1, verse 5, he's writing this book, he says, to the seven churches, verse 4. And he says in verse 5 that this this letter, the book of Revelation, is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. If we're going to have one thing that we take away today is that right now Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. And why is he the ruler of kings on earth? Because he is the firstborn from the dead. And as the firstborn from the dead, what does that mean? That means that not only was he the first person to ever rise from the dead, never to die again, but it means that he is the most preeminent one to ever rise from the dead. And because he died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead that God has exalted him now. He right now is the ruler of the kings on the earth. And so as we look uh, in the future here at Revelation 5, we need to understand 
we go forth with the Great Commission, not because Revelation 5 has already happened, but because Revelation 5 and really the end and the destiny of the world is secure because our Savior is a resurrected Christ. As I said before, if you look over at Revelation 1, verse 9, things were not going so well for John. His efforts to be an apostle were not turning out as he planned. It says there, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Right? He's not on the island of Patmos because he thought in his mind that that was the best place to fulfill the Great Commission. Right? That's not why he's there. He's like, I, John, am on the island of Patmos because I've been persecuted for testifying that I saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And this is where I was. I wasn't out there telling people of, about Jesus. I wasn't out there strengthening the churches. I was exiled to the island of Patmos. And as we continue to look at the book of Revelation, we'll see that this definitely was a mindset John was in as we get to Revelation 5. Things were not going well for John. But thankfully... God gives John the visions of the book of Revelation to let him know and to let us know as Christians that even when the kingdom isn't turning out the way we think it should turn out, that the destiny of the world is still secure. Jesus will still have victory. And so after, right after this, John is given a, res a, a revelation of the glorified Christ the glorified Christ appears to John. He gets to see Christ. And then Christ tells him to write some letters to these seven churches to encourage them to overcome as Christ is overcome. But even in those uh, letters to the churches, it's not all positive, right? It's, uh, you know, there's, there's exhortation to overcome, but then there's also lots of warning. And then the last letter to the seven churches is to the church of Laodicea, which Jesus threatens to spew out of his mouth. And so you have to, as, as we come to Revelation 5, try to put yourselves in the John's context as he was hearing these uh, visions and seeing these visions from the Lord. He sees Christ. He writes letters to the churches. Christ warns these churches to persevere. Otherwise, some of them, even the last church, he might spew out of his mouth. And then in chapter 4, John sees a vision of the Father, God the Father, sitting on his throne in heaven, being worshipped. And that's where we pick up in the context. In Revelation 5.1, we see that the Father has a scroll in his right hand. And there's been a lot of uh, attempts to define what exactly this scroll is. A lot of good things have been said. I stole something I think is really good from one commentator, and it's, I worked into the title of my sermon. Uh, one commentator said that this scroll is the book of destiny. Uh, in one sense, this scroll really is only to be taken by the rightful ruler of the earth, right? And when John already told us up front, 
in chapter 1, verse 5, that the rightful ruler of the kings of the earth is Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. And so in one sense, uh, it's been said that this scroll is really the title deed to the earth. When it's handed to Christ, it gives Christ the right to rule the earth. And yet I think there's way more going on here. It's not just his title deed to rule the earth because Jesus doesn't just come back and smash all of his enemies and rule over the earth. What Jesus does is he brings humanity along with him. He brings humanity along, the chosen ones along with him so that we with Christ can fulfill our original created purpose, that we can rule and reign with him. And so I believe that would be a full definition of what uh, the essence of this scroll is. Uh, whoever takes this scroll, whoever is worthy to take this scroll is one who has the power and the qualifications to bring the world and even the whole universe to its original created destiny. That's who this individual will be. As we see, the search comes up empty, right? A strong angel is sent out into really uh, the whole universe. He has apparently a very loud voice that penetrates the whole universe, calling for anyone who is worthy to come and take this scroll. And then, I believe for John's sake, there's a pause, and for our sake, there's a pause and it says specifically, and no one was found worthy. And John begins to weep. And we know the whole story, and so sometimes we don't identify with John here. But I think we have to pause for a moment and identify with John. Uh, think about your life. I think it's good to think about our lives. What visible fruit do I have that Jesus is conquering the world? What visible fruit have I been able to accomplish for Jesus Christ? Has my life turned out the way I would have chosen it to turn out? If we were honest, we would say that we, if we really contemplate that, it would keep us up at night. And it should keep us up at night some, I believe. If we were honest, we'd say, you know what? Things aren't turning out the way I think they should turn out family members and friends and people that I thought I could reach for Christ, things are not turning out well. Uh, and so when we have those periods of depression and anxiety and fear and a sense that our lives could unravel, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I feel like my life could just fall apart. And Jesus might not do anything about it. If we're honest, we would say, you know what? John's weeping is pretty much what I do all the time. And yet, with Apostle John, we need to hear the words, weep no more, right? There is a worthy one, right? This whole scene has just been played out to help John and to help us realize that even when we don't see things going the way we think they should go, there is a worthy one who always has been absolutely in control. And who is this worthy one? This worthy one meets the Old Testament qualifications, right? He is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is qualified. You might say 
he has the pedigree, right? That's why he's worthy, right? Throughout the whole Old Testament, I didn't read Isaiah 49, but the servant, right? God the Father speaks to his servant, the Messiah who has come, and said it is too small a thing that you should just reach the nation of Israel. I'm going to raise you up to reach all the nations. And so Jesus has the pedigree. He has the qualifications. And yet he's not just worthy, right, because he's big and strong. It's not like the football player. You know, he really looks like a good physical specimen. Let's put him out in the field now, though, and see if he can really perform, right? Uh, Jesus isn't just big and strong. Jesus already has a victory trophy in his trophy case, right? Jesus, it says here, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah has conquered. He already has a major, decisive victory on his side already. And what does it mean that he's conquered? I believe it goes right back to God's original intentions for the world. What it means that he has conquered, right? And it goes back to also Revelation 1, verse 5. What it means that he has conquered is that when he died on the cross and when he, as the firstborn from the dead, rose from the dead, he defeated sin and Satan and death. And that is why he is qualified to come and take the scroll and to bring the world to its intended destiny. Because he has the pedigree, but he also has the victory that qualifies him to redeem mankind, to help us and to guarantee that we will be able to fulfill our God-intended destiny, the reason for which we are created. As John looks, right, as he turns around, this is why he... It says that he sees a lamb, right, standing as if slain. And apparently this lamb still looks like it still has the wounds of having been slain. And yet, uh, it's not laying on the ground. It's not uh, in the grave. It's standing. And it's not just standing. He looks and it has seven horns, a symbol of perfect power. And I don't know about you, but I like watching those videos sometimes, just seeing the two big rams butt heads, right, with the full curls, and they're just butting heads, and the, really the whole ground is shaking around them, and yet Jesus, the picture we're to have is his power, his resurrection power, is that he has seven sets of those big horns on his head. It's really absurd to think about it, but the picture is clear. Jesus is perfect in power as the resurrected Savior. He has conquered all of our enemies. He is perfect in power. Don't doubt. He will not come up missing when we need him the most. He has always been with us, right? Always, even to the end of the age. The New Testament is really full of this uh, kind of terminology. We won't look there, but remember Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, right? Paul prays for us believers that we would have the faith to realize that the, resurrected, the resurrection power of Christ is actually at work in us. That's why we will overcome. And as he goes on to describe the resurrection, he says that the resurrection, God had raised Christ up above all other authorities in the whole universe, and he has put everything under his feet. 
At the resurrection, Jesus conquered all of our enemies. He dealt them a decisive blow. In Hebrews 2.9, the author of Hebrews, you can jot this down. We won't stop here, otherwise it'll be like last service, and I'll have to cut and paste way too much at the end. In Hebrews 2.9 and 10, we'll turn to Hebrews a little bit later, hopefully, but in Hebrews 2, uh, right before four, verse 9, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, which speaks of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things under his feet. But then he goes on, he gets to verse 8 and 9. He's like, but right now there's a problem, right? We don't see everything underneath of our feet. We have a problem right now. But even though we have a problem that we all know, the human race has a serious problem. Everybody knows it, right? But he says, even though not everything is under control in the world, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And why is he crowned with glory and honor? He goes on in verse 10, so that he can bring many sons to glory, right? Jesus comes, he's worthy to take this scroll. He's been exalted, not just so he can defeat all of his enemies, so that he can bring us to glory with him and change us back into the image of God so that we can fulfill our God-ordained and created purpose to be a kingdom and priests and to promote his glory. Look with me over quickly. I want to look at this passage, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. You know, things didn't always go very smoothly for the apostle Paul, right? Sometimes we just think about the missionary journeys and we're like, they just walked around and made converts of the whole known world and everything was always great. And yet, between the lines is days and months and years of just periods of time when their plans failed. Things didn't go according to plan for them. But what I love about this passage, if I can find it in my Bible here, is that, where did I say we were going? I lost my train of thought here. What? Two, okay, I'm here. Great. Things didn't always go according to plan for Paul. Look at verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Think about that. He came to Troas to preach the gospel. Okay, great, Paul. Yeah, you're doing what we expect you to do. He says, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So think about it. Paul has a desire to preach the gospel. There's even an open door in front of him. There's people who he can preach to. He says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. It just, his plans didn't work out. And I think that's the way it is for us sometimes, right? Have you ever attempted to share the gospel with someone and you had all the right intentions and you just couldn't find the words. Or maybe you thought you had the words, and they just seemed to fall on the floor out of your mouth. Uh, things don't always go according to plan. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to know was what was his secret? What did he always keep in mind? That he was always going to get back up and keep preaching the gospel because 
He had his eyes not on himself and his own abilities, but on the fact that the resurrected king was always going to lead him in victory. He goes on in verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And that word triumphal procession is specifically referring to our resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, our King. Triumphal procession was what a conquering king did. You, to lead a triumphal procession, whether it was behind them or in front of them, you're in, you forced your enemies to walk out in front of you in chains. That was a visible sign of your dominance. And G, or Paul wants us to know, you know what? Things didn't work out then, but you know what? I'm not giving up because Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. He even if we fail, Jesus is always showing his dominance over his foes. And guess what? He's actually doing it through us, even when we don't know it. As he goes on, he says, verse 15, For we are an aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Sometimes we speak the gospel and people hopefully will get saved. Sometimes we speak the gospel and they just sneer at us and call us fools. But either way, the Apostle Paul wants us to know, whatever the outcome is, Jesus Christ is always leading us in triumphal procession. And why is he doing this? Because he's already dealt all the enemies that we have a, a, a serious blow. He already has a big trophy in his case. Satan already knows I did everything in my power to keep him in the grave once, and it didn't work out. I even had all the sins of the whole human race placed on him, and it didn't work out. I wasn't able to seal the deal. I was not able to hold him with my, all my power. As we look back to Revelation 5, we see that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll because he meets the Old Testament qualifications, but not just because he has a right pedigree, but because he has already dealt a decisive blow to sin, to Satan, and death. And if you have some time, read Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Actually, let's just turn there quickly. I want us to see that I'm not making this stuff up here. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Really, we were slaves to sin, to Satan, and death. And this last couple of years under COVID just proves it, right? People are, if you want to control people, make them afraid of dying. I mean, this is biblical. It's no joke, right? I'm laughing too. It's okay to laugh. Um, but look at what Jesus did for us. Keep in mind, right, this is right after, he said, we don't see everything under his feet, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, right? Because of his sufferings of death, he's crowned with glory and honor so that he can bring many sons to glory. And how is he able to do this? Why is he able to bring us to glory? Because he's defeated all of our enemies. Verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely he is not... For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And you could also look over at 1 Corinthians 15, right? Jesus is the one that gives us victory over sin and death in the power of the law. Now, as these people in heaven sing this song to Jesus, we see another further reason why Jesus' Victory over sin, Satan, and death guarantees the outcome and the destiny of the world. We see that it's guaranteed because when Jesus died, right? Jesus didn't just die uh, for the whole world in a very generic way to hope that some people would believe in him. And I believe there is a sense in the New Testament in which we could rightly say that Jesus' death on the cross was good enough for all the sins of the world. And yet, here we see very specifically, and this is actually the text that really helped me understand this, we see here that Jesus on the cross did something very specific for a particular group of people. And what he did for this particular group of people guarantees their eternal destiny. We see that very clearly here. In the song, it says, Were there you to take the scroll and to open its seals? Verse 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them, these specific people, them, a kingdom. It's past tense. You have made them. He didn't say, you're hoping to make all people in the world. He says, you have made them already a kingdom and priests. And not only have you done something for them now, but you've guaranteed their future, right? The future for which we, as a ransom chosen of God, were created for. It says, and they, the same specific group of individuals, they shall reign upon the earth. And so, even though we don't always understand the sovereignty of God, here it is very plainly, right? Uh, here it is, this word to ransom is really the word to buy, that you bought, uh, that Jesus bought something. Uh, and really, what did he buy us from? He brought us out of the slave market of sin, right? Where we were held captive to the fear of death by Satan. That's where Jesus bought us from. These are the people, right, of Romans 8, right? These are those people that everything works together for good, right? To those who love God. And why does it work together for good? 
because there is a particular group of people that God has foreknown. He has loved them before time. And he didn't just love them before time. He called them in time to believe in him. And these same people that he called, he also justified. He declared them to be righteous. And those same people he also glorified, right? These are those people. Um, if you remember Colossians 1, 13 and 14, you guys remember that text, jot it down, right? It was, what does it say there? It says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and how did this transfer take place? What it made it possible it's in the Son. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. How did the transaction take place? Be from us to change from being slaves in the kingdom of darkness to being slaves in Jesus' kingdom? It happened because Jesus bought us with His blood. He redeemed us. Therefore, we could have the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, when, when Satan tries to step in and say, you know what? Hey, fear death, fear death. Really, he has no authority over us because he has no accusation. He can't pin any sins on us because in Christ, all of our sins have been paid for. Just for your own uh, thoughts, you can also look up Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Right there, it talks about how all of our Debt was nailed to the cross, and Jesus made a public display of defeating of all the spiritual forces that were our enemies. First Peter 3, 21 through 22 uh, says we are saved, and part of the resurrection that Jesus has been exalted, and how he's able to save us is now he's exalted, having had all angels and all spiritual powers put underneath in subjection to him. Jesus has defeated all of our enemies, and he's guaranteed it because he paid the price of his blood to guarantee our future. Now, before we move on from this idea that we are now a kingdom and priest to God, remember Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. He's restoring us. What the amazing thing is, is now we are a kingdom and we are priests, and so even right now, even though we're not fully restored yet, we won't be fully restored until we see his face, right now we have past tense been made a kingdom and priest. And what does that mean? That even right now we are able to fulfill God's purpose for us. Um, you can look over, jot down 1 Peter 2.9. Some of you may know this verse. There it says, actually, we're a royal priesthood. It kind of merges both of these concepts together. We're a kingly priesthood, right? And among other things, what is the result of the fact that we are a royal priesthood? It's so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his light or his glory. And so even right now, Jesus is assisting us and restoring us so that we can proclaim his excellency, so we can promote God's glory. Now, we could think of God's sovereignty in a couple different ways, right? So I've just preached a pretty limited atonement in case you didn't know that. Pretty, this is 
a limited atonement. And what does that mean? That means that in some sense, on the cross, Jesus' death, right? That's what his blood means, is that he died for us. In some sense, Jesus' death was limited in that it didn't guarantee the salvation of all but it was limited in that it guaranteed the salvation of a particular group of people, right? And these people just happened to be from every uh, tribe, language, and people, and nation. They just happened to be, isn't that according to God's plan, right? <laughs> that he is going to fill the earth with his glory, right? Uh, that all flesh will praise him. All kinds of people will praise him. But we could look at this limited atonement and we could respond and we can say, you know what, that's not fair. Uh, I don't see how that's fair. And then why should we even go, right? Why should we go tell anyone about Jesus? That we could respond like that. Um, although I don't think that's how the scriptures would have us respond. Because it's very clearly here in our Bible for a reason. And the reason it's here in our Bible, right, it's not contradictory to the New Testament or to the Great Commission. It's not uh, like, okay, the atonement's limited, but that has nothing to do with the Great Commission. Or the atonement's limited, that contradicts the Great Commission. Really, the reason why this limited atonement is here in the Scriptures is to give us confidence that God is guaranteeing the outcome of the Great Commission. He's guaranteeing it. And so it's here for people like the Apostle John who things are not going according to their plans. It's here for people like him. It's here for people like us to say, you know what, I may have failed in the past. Things may not be going the way I think they should go. But I, because I know the destiny is secure because I know that God has already made me a kingdom and priest because I already know this, that I will reign upon the earth because I know that Christ has ransomed particular people that he will save because I know all this. I know that when I share the gospel, God is going to guarantee the results. And so... I like to play games, as I said, when my team has a blowout, right, in the first quarter. I like, I like those kind of games, right? I like my team to just blow out the other team. But for Christians, what we need to understand, the end is fixed, right? God will have his way in the world, and he has promised to use us. Therefore, I can be assured that it doesn't all rest on me. I need to be faithful, and God is the one, right? As I plant, as I water, God is the one who will give the increase. And he gives the increase because Christ is worthy, because Christ has ransomed particular individuals. And so instead of being contradictory to the Great Commission, it actually gives us confidence to go. Did you know that the father of modern missions, William Carey, was a pretty staunch Calvinist? <laughs> he probably believed in particular, uh, right, limited atonement. Uh, and yet, this is what drove him to look at a map of the world and to say, you know what, I'm going to go. I have to go. God's ransomed people out there. He's determined that he's going to use people, right? 
How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they're sent? God has determined, he has all the means determined and worked into his sovereign plan. Therefore, I'm going to go because it's not a waste of my life. Because this is the way God has chosen to do it. Now, as chapter 5 in Revelation ends, we see that really the first thing we see is that Christ is worshipped or the Lamb is worshipped. And when we think of this worship, first Christ is worshipped and then Christ is worshipped with the Father, what do you think of when you, when you hear these scriptures read? that the whole universe will worship God. Really, I believe what we should hear in this worship is that everything is in its proper place in the world, right? When all the universe and everything in them worships God, what that should signal to us is that the kingdom is at hand. Everything is in its proper place. Now, I'll hopefully lay that out a little bit more for you. But what I want us to catch here, and I believe John uh, or God wants us to catch here through this revelation, is that Jesus is equal to the Father. It comes through very clearly. In verse 12, right, they sang this song and said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They sing to Jesus. And they said to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you were to look back at the worship of the Father in chapter 4, verse 11, you would see that they use some of these same words. And you would you see right off the bat, okay, the Lamb is getting worshipped with some of the same words that they worshipped the Father. Oh, what's going on here? And then if that wasn't uh, enough, it says right in verse 13, that he hears really every creature in heaven and earth and under earth in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever and then right the 24 elders fall down and worship before the father on the throne and before the lamb and so the picture here is one where Jesus is receiving glory right alongside the father there is no doubt right here and here, what I love about this passage, right, is Jesus is not the Father, right? The Father's on the throne. He has a right hand, which, you know, we can debate why he's pictured with a right hand. Uh, but he's pictured as distinct from the Lamb. But then the Lamb receives worship with the Father. He is equal in glory, equally divine with the Father. What makes God the Father God is the same thing that makes Jesus God. What's amazing, though, is that the whole universe worships God, right? That's what the original creation of man was intended for, for the whole world to be worshiping God, right? Uh, but one thing that really caught my attention, I had never really thought about it as I read this passage in the past, uh, yes, all the redeemed, right? God wants to be worshipped for his mercy. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, right? God desires to be worshipped for his mercy. That's why he sent us on the Great Commission. But as I looked at this passage, look carefully with me at verse 13. He says, I heard every creature 
And I was translating that from the Greek. I was like, oh, what does every creature mean? And it was pretty simple, right? It's kind of a no-brainer. It's like every created being, everything, every being that's ever been created, <laughs> okay? Okay, that's kind of all-inclusive already here. And he says, in heaven, and I believe here he's talking about the realm of the spiritual. Uh, so every, every created being in the spiritual realm, and on earth, right? Every created being in the realm of the physical and under the earth and in the sea, uh, under the earth possibly would be, right, in Hades or hell or the grave and in the sea just in case some people died there. Uh, but then he, then he says, okay, in everything, every created being in every realm that exists, and then he tacks this on and he said, not just created beings, but all that is in them. What he's saying is all that is in the spiritual and the physical universe. He heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So what that tells me is something really striking. What that tells me is that this doesn't just include the redeemed. This doesn't just include those who have been bought in particular by the blood of Christ. This includes all beings. This includes Satan himself. This includes all those who will spend eternity in hell forever. And I, what this does not mean is that they're saved. I can guarantee you that, right? Uh, we won't look at all the verses, but if you want to, you can look over at Revelation 20, I believe it's verse 9 or 10, where Satan and Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. And what is the lake of fire? He says it's a place that will burn forever and ever, right? It's not a ceasing to exist. It's eternal punishment. And then in 20, 11 through 15, we see this second death, the great white throne judgment, where all the dead are raised, and where are they sent after they're judged according to their deeds because their names were not found in the book of life? They are thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, and then you can also look again, 21 verse 8, 22 verse 15. It's all talking about God's judgment on the unredeemed and on his enemies Satan and his spiritual enemies. And so what I can guarantee you is this doesn't mean that all these people are saved. But as I really came to grips with the, what this means, what does this mean? What can I take away from this? What, what I can take away from this is that in the end, God will guarantee that he's going to get the glory from the redeemed and from all those who reject him. God will be glorified. We can't just think of God's glory as being limited to these individuals that he's redeemed. And I know this is really hard for us to uh, actually accept because this is not the way we would have done it, right? I personally would have saved everybody, especially my family members that I loved. I would have saved all of them. And yet... Um, well, that's a different story. I would have saved my loved ones. I'll put it that way. That's the way I would have done it. Um, 
yes, we can have this conversation later. <laughs> but um, in my mind, I wouldn't have done it in my human instincts, right? I would, my children, I would, have, I would save all of them. My mom and my dad, I would save all of those people. That's how I think. I'm not saying that's the best way to think. Um, but what I'm, what I'm getting at here, what I really, the point I want to make is that in the end, God will guarantee that everything brings him glory, right? This is like Philippians 2, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'm not just bringing this up to discuss what I would do if I was God because that really is meaningless, right? I'm not God. <laughs> I, it doesn't matter what I would do if I was God. But we have to think like this. Because what I believe that this does for us is it provides us a peace that nothing else in the world can provide us for. When things don't go the way we planned, even when our loved ones don't uh, bow the knee to Christ, uh, even when our loved ones have died and it's very doubtful that they knew Christ, we can be assured that God will get glory in all things. And we think about our creative purpose. What is our creative purpose? Our purpose is, right, to find our greatest joy and contentment and meaning in seeing God glorified. And so we have to believe, and I believe we're gonna, we see it right in Revelation 21, we have to accept the fact that even though this world didn't work out the way we hoped it would work out, that we can be guaranteed that in the end, God will receive all the glory. No, no one who rejects him, not even the devil himself, we'd be able to rob God of his glory. Someday God will put down all of his enemies. Someday he will receive glory from everyone. Now the good news is, right, uh, God is not just a God who... Uh, crushes all of his enemies, right? He has redeemed particular people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Um, because we're kind of there in this service, I do want to look over at Revelation 7, verse 9. Right, I'm not, I don't want you to get the vibe that God is all about getting glory from sending people to hell forever. <laughs> I don't want that to be what we come away with here. What I want us to come away with is that God's plan for his people is guaranteed, and he will get the glory from everybody. Look at this verse. It says, And th after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What I want us to catch there, though, is, right, he says it's a great multitude, and before he said myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, here he just straight up, he says, it was a multitude that no one can number, right? That's really what he's getting at here. And this multitude that no one can number, right? These aren't angels. These aren't the unredeemed. These are people who are saved, who will spend eternity with God. God will fulfill his purposes. Now, as we close to make a little bit of application, Jesus will come back, right? 
uh, as we look over at Revelation 21. He will come back, right? The dwelling place of God will be among man. And then in verse 4 it says, what is going to be the result of this? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And as he goes on, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. And what I want us just to hang on to and grasp as Christians um, is that, you know, sometimes we look at our calendars and we have those uh, bad days on our calendars, right? Those calendars that remember, that remind us of a loved one who passed away. Uh, we have these bad memories, and yet what we have here in the consummation of the kingdom is that Jesus is going to shepherd us. He's going to wipe away all of our tears. For all of eternity, uh, we're going to be there with Christ. Uh, and as we think about this, Though I, I want us just to realize that as Apostle Paul, uh, we need to realize that we're not trying to fulfill the Great Commission to show that we have it all figured out, right? Um, God, as I'm beginning to hopefully understand, God does things in a way that guarantee that he gets the glory, right? That's why the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, said that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, so that the power will be shown to be from God and not from us. So as you think about your life, as you, as you weigh your life, I, what I really want the application, I want us to weigh our lives. I want us to ask ourselves, what are we accomplishing for Christ in this world? But I don't want us to get too introspective because I want us to really realize that what we are called to be faithful to do is to plant and to water, to proclaim the gospel. We are not called to be faithful to give the increase. And what we need to realize is uh, maybe you're like so many people, you've preached the gospel to all kinds of different people, and you really can't really even count on more than one hand the people that you hope maybe got saved from it. Uh, what, I, what I want us to really come to grips with is that the power belongs to God. He's not always going to show us all that was accomplished by our efforts. Why? Because then we would try to steal glory from him, right? <laughs> At least I know I would. As we apply this as well, I want us to realize that this is why we serve in the church, right? I know some crazy guy said something about lighting a fire under donkey's tails a few weeks back. Um, about serving the church, but this is why we serve in the church, right? We serve in the church because we know the end. We know that our efforts, even though we can't see them, are not in vain in the Lord. This is why we preach the gospel to our neighbors, even though we've been rejected many other times, even though we went out and we tried to say something and we got our tongue tied. This is why we get up again and we continue to preach the gospel because we were made for this, and we have a king who is changing us back into the image of God. And just because we failed once, do you think that's going to stop God from fulfilling his purposes through us? We need to get up again. We need to continue to grow in our ability to communicate the gospel. We need to keep trying to plant churches, right? We need to keep trying to plant churches as a church. We need to get behind people who are attempting to be sent out to do this. 
Uh, I will say another thing, application, we need to be careful not to get too caught up in politics. And I say that because I know we're getting ready to have a wonderful election here in September. And um, I'm not at all saying that you should vote for someone who you believe will make it harder for the church to proclaim the gospel. Use your wisdom in that. I would never vote for someone that I believe would uh, make it harder for the church to proclaim the gospel. But we have to, as American Christians, not get too worked up in politics, right? Jesus is the king, and he's not the king so that we can do whatever we want in this life. He's the king because he guarantees that it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so uh, we can get too stressed about politics we can get too concerned about the ideologies of the day that are the false gospels of the day. But really, as Christians, we need to make sure that we are keeping the main focus on the gospel. And what I mean by that is, is really what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9. Do, uh, do something, read through 1 Corinthians 9, right? If you're, a, if you're like myself and you tend to get worked up about politics from time to time, read 1 Corinthians 9. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, the Apostle Paul starts off, he says, Am I not free? Are we, are we not free? And what does he mean by that? He means by that that he only has one person in the universe that he bows the knee to. That's Jesus Christ. He only bows the knee to Jesus Christ. No one else has authority to tell him how to live his life. Now, we could come away from scriptures like this, Revelation 5 and the exaltation of Christ, and he's going to defeat his foes, and yes, my king is Jesus. We could come away and say, you know what? I'm going to go out in the world. I'm going to do whatever I want, no matter what the government tells me I need to do. And yet, if you read 1 Corinthians 9, you realize that's not how Paul reacted, right? He said, I'm free, right? I'm free. I only have one person that I account to. That's Jesus Christ. And yet, if you read through the passage, he says, um, I gave up, right, my rights, my freedoms. I gave up my freedom to charge people for preaching the gospel. I gave up my right to live outside of the law, I acted like I was under the law when I was around certain people. I abstained from eating certain foods and this and that when I was around certain people. Then when I was around the people who, uh, the Gentiles, I didn't, uh, you know, live in their presence as if I, you know, held my nose up above them and as a law keeper. And so uh, all that to say is, we have to really think through this, right? I don't want you to come across away from this message thinking, okay, Jesus is the king, therefore blow off all authority and do whatever you want. No, the apostle Paul lived his life as a free person under Christ. He was willing to give up his rights to make sure that the gospel remained the main thing, right? He says he does it all for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, uh, I would like us to realize that there's one main reason that we're all Christians, right? There's one main reason. I think too often times as Christians, we just think, you know what? It's the, it's the missionaries, right? It's the, it's the pastors. Those are the people that have a particular calling in their life. Those are the people who, uh, you know, they need to let God tell them where to move and do all these different things. 
You know, those are the people that have a particular calling. I don't really see that in the New Testament at all. Um, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, he didn't say, oh, that's just for missionaries and pastors. He didn't say that, right? And part of the scene was go and make disciples. Wherever you go, be making disciples. That's the reason you are going to make disciples. And I'm not telling you that you can't move out of the Bay Area. I never really wanted to be in the Bay Area myself, but here I find myself here. Um, I don't want to be telling you where you move. I do know that some of us need to stay in the Bay Area because, you know why? Because all the nations of the world are here. They're coming here. And God's pretty strategic about his great commission, right? He was pretty strategic, uh, right, about the atonement. He wants to reach people from all the nations. So this is actually a pretty strategic place, right? The Apostle Paul was actually very strategic, right? He went to some rather large places where major highways intersected to get the gospel to all the nations as fast as possible. And I'm not here to tell you whether to move to some other state or not to move to some other state. What I'm here to hopefully impress upon your minds is that if you are a Christian, you are called to do one main thing with your life. You're not called to, above all, make sure you have a career that uh, makes it possible for you to have a lot of nice things. We're not called to be happy. Uh, you know, we're not called to get comfortable. Every Christian is called to make and to move and to do whatever he does for one main purpose, and that is to make the gospel known. So whatever decisions we make with our lives, every individual, we need to weigh this in. Paul said he does it all for the sake of the gospel. So with that, I'm way over time again. But hey, it's only 15 minutes and we don't have a service following. I'm going to pray for us and then hopefully the worship team...